Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. In April 2015, the streets of Baltimore erupted. We have a patrol car that's under assault. Get down and hover. We need to shoot them down here. We're getting free. Throwing the rocks. It's a great product. It was like a war. They humming them back. Let's start spraying them with the pepper foggers. We have PG County. Just because I'm walking down the street, they want to pull me over. So, first rock I picked up, I threw it. I ain't even going to lie. The protest started with the death of Freddie Gray, a 25-year-old black man who made eye contact with a police officer and took off running. A group of cops chased and arrested him for carrying a knife. They loaded Freddie into a police van where he sustained fatal injuries. On the day of his funeral, unrest broke out. Its root causes were decades in the making. But many people heard about what happened to Freddie Gray and asked, why did he run in the first place? In this hour, we look at two cases of running from cops that try to answer that question. It's a collaboration with WYPR in Baltimore that was first broadcast in April on the two-year anniversary of the unrest. We begin on that night in 2015. The intersection of Pennsylvania and North Avenues in West Baltimore was the epicenter of protest and looting. You seen like a whole army of people just at every store taking everything. Hey, everything. <laughs> and everybody was knocking each other down. They was coming out with all the pills they could come out with and the TV off the wall inside there. I'm going to keep it 100 with you. I want one of the police to spit, to blow a kiss, do something so I can do something. Because if I do something, oh, my homies are going to be popping off. All that hands up, we don't shoot, let's pray. Get the, you think they pray before they shoot us? The evening after Freddie Gray's funeral, at this corner known as Penn North, police, at first, largely hung back as people threw bottles, sacked stores, and burned empty police cars. Then the fire truck started arriving. Then we see the CVS catch on fire. Next you know, boom, we're, we're responding to that call. Then they're throwing a two-by-four at us. You know, I mean, usually people in the city love us because we're taking care of their mothers and their grandmothers. But that day, we were nobody's friend. I tell you, man, it was, it was crazy. Police threw tear gas. Protesters linked arms and formed a line, and an uneasy calm fell over the intersection. In the haze, a line of police advanced on protesters, beating their nightsticks against their riot shields. Reporter Mary Wiltenberg lives a mile from there and reconstructed what happened next. At Penn North that evening, there was this iconic image, an eerie photo that made headlines worldwide. In the middle of a smoky intersection, a young man on a bike wearing a gas mask facing off against a line of riot cops. All kinds of people who were out at the intersection that day, protesting or documenting or just watching, noticed the guy on the bike, raising one fist in the air. When I think of this area, when I think of Pendant North, when I think of the riots, I think of him with the gas mask, riding around on the bike. You know, who has a gas mask? Like, yeah, just laying yeah, around. That's what I'm saying. Like, he, handy. It like, was so, so that's like. What made him look so cool. And he was looking like a damn king in the middle with his hands up. And he was like, damn, I wish I was him. It was just great to see no fear. That same young man, wearing a red and gray hoodie, had also appeared a few minutes before in the background of a live CNN report while a reporter was talking to a community activist. How far is this going to go? As far as, it, as far as they take us. As far as they take us. What does us. that mean? 
Watch yourself. Watch yourself. It means what's behind me right now. Exactly. What's behind me now. See? See? Here, the reporter spun around to see water spraying up into the air behind him. If, if you just saw that, they just, while we were talking there, just cut the hose with a knife, trying to, and then ran, trying to uh, thwart the efforts of the authorities to actually turn out this fire. Uh, the guy in the red and gray hoodie had poked the hose twice with a pocket knife. 4901, please be aware they're cutting the hose. They're cutting the hose to the hydrant right at North Avenue. Then the young man headed down the street on his bike. Police were watching, but couldn't spare the manpower to follow him. The guy on the bike? That was Greg Butler. I met him shortly afterward. He was 21, confident, big smile. Over the past two years, I've gone with him to a dozen court appearances, and we've talked a lot about what he did and why. Here's how he remembers the scene when he arrived that day. You had the Muslim brothers creating a line between the police. You had young kids on bikes. You had women crying. You had young guys cussing out police and throwing bottles. And um, when you sit back and just look, it's just like, wow. You know, this is, this is my city letting the world know that we understand what's going on with us and we ain't standing for it. Greg is from Baltimore. He grew up in a rough part of town with his two sisters, sometimes his dad, who was in and out of prison, and rarely his mom, who was in and out of prison and addicted to heroin. I remember being four or five years old, and I'm sleeping on the floor, and I haven't seen my mom in days, and I don't know where my dad is. And me and my sister are feeding my little sister. The kids relied on each other, sometimes went hungry. But Greg was bright, focused, stayed out of trouble. He became a basketball star. Literally slept with the ball, like a pillow, you know. <laughs> Captain of the team at Baltimore Polytechnic Institute, or Poly, the most selective public high school in the city. He won a full-ride scholarship to college. Then Greg's dad lost his job. Greg took on more hours at work. His grades slipped, and he lost his scholarship. Shortly before the unrest, he landed back in his old neighborhood, no longer a sports star or a college kid, feeling like a failure. At some point, you feel defeated, you feel beaten, and like, I can't get over the hump. And I'm, I am the first person in my family to go to college, but I don't have anybody in my family who can relate and understand that now I need you more than ever. The night before the unrest, violence hit close to home for Greg. His good friend's dad was killed. Greg spent the evening with friends at a bar talking about people they'd lost. When he got home in the wee hours, he sat up Googling, wondering if he might have a role to play in his city, not as a basketball star, but as some kind of activist. I researched the number of people killed in my city, and I found out that I was born in a year that had the most murders in Baltimore, 93. 353 murders in one year, still the deadliest on record. So when you find a, <laughs> the familiarity between yourself and, you know, the situation, you know, I was almost meant for this. The next day, when he heard what was happening at Penn North, Greg felt like he had to be there. A friend gave him a ride most of the way and loaned him a gas mask. When he dropped Greg near the smoky intersection, Greg says he spotted an abandoned bike and hopped on. After riding around a while, he saw this fire hose that had just been hooked up to a hydrant. He felt in his hoodie for the pocket knife he always carried, and he ran up and stabbed it once, then a second time. A year and a half later, he tried to tell me why he'd done it. The best way that I could explain it is just like... We tired of everything. It's whatever I'm doing, whatever I, I want to do out here. It's, it's nobody that can touch me. You know, y'all catch me tomorrow and snatch me out the car like y'all been doing. But today, I'm going to do whatever I want. Hindsight being 2020, I probably wouldn't do it again. But in a moment, it made all the sense in the world. evening in 2015, as water rained down, strangers hugged and high-fived Greg, and he did a little happy dance that was caught on camera. Then he hung around the intersection for hours, having intense conversations with strangers about how to fix Baltimore. He'd taken a risk, and it appeared he'd gotten away with it. Nobody had gotten hurt. Deputy Fire Chief Carl Zimmerman was in charge of the fire ground at Penn and North that day. Afterward, he talked to me about what Greg had done. Why would you put a hole in the hose? He had no idea what the results of his actions could be. 
When you take away that water supply, all you get is fire. Zimmerman said not everybody was out on the streets. The good citizens in Baltimore went inside. He pointed to his firefighters. And then these guys went out and cleaned up what was left. On his way home that night, craving a smoke, Greg spotted a looted 7-Eleven with its glass front door smashed out. Climbing inside, he went behind the counter and picked up a pack of cigarettes. Suddenly, plainclothes police who'd been casing the store ran in. They ordered Greg to the floor, searched him, cuffed him, and took him outside to wait for the transport van. But when it pulled up, Greg made a split-second call. I took off, and um, the guy that had me, he was nowhere close to catching me. The police officer that did catch me, he used the bike that I had. If he didn't have that bike, I don't think they would have caught me. (laughs) I asked him why he ran. There's two answers to that, right? My political answer is that the landscape of the day was just so hectic. I didn't know if the police had me, what they would really do. But also from the street point of view, they caught me too easy. You know, it caught me way too easy. You got to work for this. Greg knew once they booked him, that was it. But if he ran, he had one last shot at freedom. You know what I mean? If, if you ain't, just relax and get ready for your peanut butter sandwich. Greg spent over a month in jail. He was eventually charged by the state of Maryland for running from cops and by the federal government for cutting the fire hose. He faced up to 25 years for that. The morning of his state trial... The courthouse was a zoo. Live at City Hall. We're waiting to get into court. We're at 9.30 this morning. Well, eventually, the defense will call the defendant, William Porter, to the stand. And William Porter, the first of six officers to be tried for Freddie Gray's death, was on trial three floors down from Greg. The line to enter the building stretched down the block. The cafeteria had been converted into a media center, and protesters gathered across the street. does not deserve to go to jail for five years for poking a water hose. Greg Butler, we are here. And the cops are getting off scot-free. The two guys who beat up Freddie Gray, they could get convicted and not go to jail for as long as he would go for freaking water hose. Get the hell out of here. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No For a surreal few days in December 2015, Greg was shuttled back and forth between Baltimore City Detention Center and state and federal courthouses. While his lawyer in state court painted Greg as a novice wrongdoer, federal prosecutor Philip Selden portrayed Greg as a scheming criminal. Because Mr. Butler provided an alias name, provided an alias date of birth and an alias address. So that coupled with the fact that he actually fled from law enforcement gives the idea that he actually had a consciousness of guilt associated with his conduct. One of Greg's federal public defenders, Lucius T. Outlaw, countered. He said it was important to consider Greg's actions in context. This was a day where there was protests, rioting and looting, because a young black man was put in handcuffs and put into the back of a van and then found dead. For me and him, seeing a police officer, the natural instinct, even me, today, law degree, college, even today, my natural instinct is to turn and go the other way because you don't know what happens. Mary Wiltenberg brought us Greg's story. Later this hour, we'll hear how it ends. The Justice Department put out a report on their investigation into the Baltimore Police Department suggesting that young black men may have good reason to run for their lives when approached by Baltimore cops. When we come back, the story of another man who ran and lost his life. You're listening to Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. 
Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch Season 2 wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. After the protests following Freddie Gray's death two years ago, the Justice Department investigated Baltimore's police department. One of the main problems they found was the sheer number of times police chased African Americans in poor neighborhoods. Almost 20 years ago, the Supreme Court said that merely running from the police in a high-crime neighborhood is suspicious behavior, and police have the right to pursue them. Reporter Mary Rose Madden covers the police for WYPR in Baltimore. She stumbled on a case about another man who, like Freddie Gray, ran from the police. But unlike Gray, his death got almost no attention when it happened. The story begins in an alley in West Baltimore. It was the middle of the afternoon in August of 2007. Jay Cook was getting into his car to go get a money order to pay his rent. He could have walked. The grocery store is just a short walk away. But he was skittish. A week earlier, Jay was robbed at gunpoint right here behind his apartment building. And so when he saw two people in the alley watching him, he took off. Black male, white t-shirt. That's the description the police called in. Later, they'd report that Jay was holding his arm tightly against his body, which to them signaled he was concealing a gun. Did Jay know they were cops? Accounts differ about whether or not they were in plain clothes or uniform. But it might not have mattered even if he knew they were cops. It's not uncommon for black men in Baltimore to take off running when the police start for them. And Jade had some brushes with the law in the past. Come on, Franklin. Franklin and Fulton. You said Franklin and Fulton? Jay was running through streets and alleys. Finally, he reached this overpass bordered by this chain-link fence. 18 a block of something down on the underpass on the 40. And you just up there with her? Route 40 runs through West Baltimore. Jay squeezed through a narrow opening here and clung to the fence 70 feet above the highway. Back at the apartment, Jay's fiancée, Linda Hammond, who everyone calls Precious, started wondering what was taking Jay so long. She went outside to look for him. Well, I see one of Jay's friends, and he's crying. And he's running through the back alley, and he's crying, and he's just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I just kept asking him what's wrong, and he wouldn't tell me what was wrong. Precious found the spare key, jumped in the car, and followed police sirens and helicopters to the bridge. And I looked down. And I see a shoe. He's hanging. I see a sheet. And he was covered up. I see his hand outside of the sheet. And the police officer asked me, do I know who this person is? And they took the sheet off of him. Jay had fallen from the fence he was clinging to and was hit by a car. Only thing I was told on that day was he fit the description of a drug dealer that robbed somebody. So how did Jay end up dead? And what happened in the minutes before he fell onto the highway? The radio dispatches that day tell only part of the story. I went to see Jay's father. My name is John Gideon Cook III. My son's name was John Gideon Cook IV. We always called him Jay. Mr. Cook and I sat together at the dining room table. 
He flipped through the manila envelopes he'd carefully kept for 10 years. We wrote letters to the Department of Justice, to our congressman, to the governor, asking everybody for some kind of help on what, what took place here. Mr. Cook and his wife even filed requests under the Freedom of Information Act to get the answers they wanted. They were desperate to know more. I asked Mr. Cook to tell me what he remembered about the day Jay died. As I went up Fulton Avenue, I saw some police activity. I had no idea. It was about my son, who had just passed away. And when I, when I got to the house, Precious informed me, and shortly thereafter, my wife came up. And we had to tell her. It hurt so much. I mean, so, so, so much. We didn't know why. We didn't know what happened. We had no idea. But all we knew is that our son was no longer here. Mr. Cook said he went to the police station for answers. Couldn't even get an incident report because they kept on stalling me with that. Well, we're still working on it. Um, We haven't completed it yet. The cops did tell Mr. Cook that they found a gun on Jay. That's impossible, his dad thought. No way was his son packing a gun. Years went by, and the Cook family wasn't any closer to finding out what happened to Jay. That's why we dug in. And initially, we weren't looking to sue the city. We just wanted answers. But because we couldn't get answers, we then felt as if we needed to get some legal counsel. The Cooks hired a lawyer who'd been recommended by a relative. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good, I'm Mary Rose. How are you doing? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Olu Abiona works out of a row house in Philadelphia. His first floor office is crammed with secondhand furniture. He sits down at a large oak desk and starts to describe the case that he says blew his mind eight years ago. When I think back to what happened to Mr. Cook, you know, sometimes it gets me upset. Abiona told the Cooks to consider a civil lawsuit, but he told them they didn't have much time. Let me make it clear. This incident happened back in 2007. But it was sometime in 2009 that my clients first contacted me about it. The years the Cook family had spent trying to get answers on their own had put them dangerously close to the three-year mark when the statute of limitations would run out. Abiona had to act quickly, but he didn't have much to go on. First, he sent out a private investigator, and he found two witnesses who said they saw what happened that day at the fence. The Baltimore police had finally given the Cook family the incident report from August 2007. It said, quote, Officer Dwayne Green was in the area when he noticed an individual who he suspected was in possession of a handgun. A slight foot pursuit ensued. With just the two witnesses and the police report, Abiona filed a suit. It claimed that Jay's constitutional rights were violated, starting when the police first spotted Jay in the alley and chased him. I mean, they said that the way he appeared, it looked like he might have had a weapon on him. They didn't say they saw a weapon. That stop in of itself was racially motivated and a violation of his constitutional rights. Abiona filed a civil rights suit against the police commissioner, officers Dwayne Green and Raymond Howard, who were named in the incident report, and the city of Baltimore. The pretrial process got underway with discovery. Both sides are supposed to turn over evidence to each other by a mutually determined date. But the police department didn't turn over much at all. So Abiona filed a subpoena to get them to produce everything they had related to the Cook case. He also asked for the department's policy and procedures on excessive force, stop and frisk, and how officers determine reasonable suspicion. Abiona says this information was crucial to his case. 
if you're looking at the police department where they have a custom and practice of just stopping and frisking black people, more than 80% of that stop and frisk does not, in fact, result in an arrest. That is discriminatory stop and frisk. It is racial profile, which is part of my client's case. So I'm asking them to produce information that might support that claim. The police said the documents about the department's policies and procedures were privileged, but they said they would provide the files relating to Jay's death. The judge quickly ruled. He said the police, quote, shouldn't be put to the expense of assembling the files. But he went further and said the police didn't have to turn over anything, even the materials related to Jay Cook. The pretrial process wasn't going well for Abiona. He had to begin the depositions with little evidence, and only one of his witnesses would testify against the police. Here begins tape number one in the deposition of Shamika Summers. Shamika Summers lived across the street from the Route 40 overpass and said that on the afternoon of August 14, 2007, she was sitting outside on the steps to her house. Tell the jury, what did you observe? What did you see? I observed him running. Shamika had a bad toothache. She speaks slowly, and in the deposition video, you can see her holding her cheek. A warning, there's some offensive language here. And I saw cops running behind them. I saw them walk up like on a bridge part. And then what happened when you saw that? He was trying to hide in the bushes on the fence from the police, but they saw him. And they were shaking the fence. Who was shaking the fence? It was a white cop shaking the fence. He was shaking the fence and calling them names. Calling who names? Jay, saying he was a dumb nigga. Who was saying Jay was a dumb nigga? The cop, the knocker that had the red hat on, a white cop. The lawyer for the Baltimore Police Department also questioned Shamika. Well, given that you were an eyewitness to uh, this man falling, did you think it was important to go over and to tell the police what you saw? At the time, no, sir. Why not? I didn't want to. I didn't want to talk to the police, sir. Why not? In the video deposition, you see Shamika look at the lawyer for the police department in disbelief. Her eyes wide, as if she's saying, "Are you serious?" Because I didn't want to talk to him. They could have did me the same way they did him. So you were afraid to talk to the police mm-hmm. because they would throw you over the wall to the highway below? I don't know what they may do to me, sir. But back to the cop with the red hat that Shamika mentioned. Abiona showed her photos the police had taken. Now, I want you to go through the pictures one at a time. Tell us if you recognize any of the people there that was around the fence that day. Yeah, I recognize that cop. Who is that? That's the one that was chasing him. That was the one chasing Jerry? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The officer Shamika Summers circled was Jared Freed. Abiona hadn't named him in the lawsuit because his name wasn't in the police report. The cops who were named in the report were Officer Raymond Howard and Officer Dwayne Green. So what did they say in their depositions? Abiona questioned Green first. In the report, he's the one who chased Jay to the fence. Did you ever participate in any way, shape, or form regarding an incident at the Route 40 overpass on August 14, 2007? Yes, sir. Uh, Upon hearing the foot pursuit, I drove on the highway in the event that uh, he was going to proceed to run on the highway. Green said he didn't chase Jay. He wasn't even at the fence. That same day, Officer Raymond Howard gave a deposition. He's the officer who wrote and signed the incident report. In preparing your report, did you talk to any police officers to get information as to how the accident happened? Yes. Which officers did you talk to? Howard told Abiona that he talked to a detective who'd arrived after Jay's death. Who else did you talk to? I didn't talk to anybody else. The information that was given to me was that Officer Green was the person that was chasing the gentleman. So Officer Howard wrote the police report using only second-hand information. One more officer gave a deposition. Officer Haywood Bradley testified that he heard the dispatcher on his radio and arrived to see Jay hanging from the ledge of the highway overpass. 
He said he immediately started trying to rescue Jay. I cut my shirt, my pants, getting over the fence. I finally got over the fence. And that's when I saw him. His face was looking up at me. Because I was telling him, hold on, man, I'm coming. Just hold on. I reached out to grab him. Fell. So, like to take a minute? No, I'm OK. In the video deposition, you can see Bradley wipe away tears. I watched him fall. Car ran over him. I started screaming for help. Bradley, who's African-American, described what another officer said to him after Jay fell. Again, a warning here about offensive language. He said to me, you need to calm down. I don't know why you worry. It's just one less drug dealer we got to worry about. One less piece of An officer said, this was one less nigger we have to deal with. He did say that too. When Bradley described what happened at the fence, he named other police officers who weren't in the incident report. Two of them were named Angela Choi and Jared Freed. Remember, Freed was the officer Shamika Summers identified as chasing Jay to the fence that day. Did you see Officer Dwayne Green at the scene that day? No. At this point, it's clear. Abiona had named the wrong cops in the lawsuit because the wrong cops were named in the incident report. The report that they gave to my client was totally false. There were other police documents, and they confirmed what Officer Bradley had said. Officers Freed and Choi were at the fence the day Jay died. The police department had that evidence in their custody the whole time, and it should have been handed over during discovery. Abiona tried to add Freed and Choi to the lawsuit. I filed a motion to the judge letting him know these are just newly discovered evidence that we did not have, which changes everything because they have been leading us to think it was Officer Green that was initially involved with my client. There was no other way to know. But the judge denied Abiona's motion. He cited procedural rules. Abiona had missed the deadline to add new parties to the suit. Abiona had had what he called ample time to learn the real identities of the officers involved before filing. The judge said the plaintiffs had no one but themselves to blame. The police department intentionally lied and lied for years. Maybe if you had told the truth from the beginning, there would not be any issue of a deadline being missed. Abiona did make mistakes. The most glaring was that he sued a black officer for chasing Jay, even though the witnesses said the cop was white. In February of 2011, the judge dismissed the lawsuit. He wrote in his opinion that Abiona hadn't shown due diligence that the police hadn't acted in a way that shocked the conscience. To the cops, Jay was a suspicious character, just another black guy running in Baltimore. To his parents and Precious, he was their kid, their love, scared for his life. He didn't have a gun. He was going to the store to get a money order for the rent. Did Jay have a gun? None of the witnesses, even the police, saw him with one. What they did see was Officer Choi removing a gun from his body. And there are more questions. Were the officers chasing Jay in uniform or in plain clothes? I tried to interview Officers Choi and Freed. The police department wouldn't make them available, and they never responded to private requests. I wanted to ask them, did Officer Freed shake the fence Jay was clinging to? When I found this case in the local law library, I searched for any news stories I could find about it. The Baltimore Sun ran a short brief back in 2007. The man who was killed Tuesday after he fell off a bridge over US-40 in West Baltimore while fleeing from police officers was identified yesterday as a 25-year-old city man. My byline at the time when I worked at the Baltimore Sun was Gus G. Sentimentis. Gus used to work for the Sun on the crime beat. He remembered the story right away when I asked him about it, because it was so chilling. But, he told me, the circumstances around Jay's death weren't unusual. Back in 2007, the police, you know, were really requiring these officers uh, to, to do stop and frisks. You would have to submit at the end of your shift how many stop and frisks you did. But a lot of this was tied to officer incentives. I don't think a lot of people understand how much of a numbers game policing became in Baltimore. 
Gus says the police union president told him that police officers called their work VCR detail for violation of civil rights. About 10 years later, the Justice Department came to Baltimore in the wake of Freddie Gray's death. Good morning. Today, the Department of Justice announces the outcome of our investigation and issues a 163-page report detailing our findings. Their report made national news when it came out in August of 2016. We conclude that there is reasonable cause to believe that BPD engages in a pattern or practice of conduct that violates the Constitution and federal anti-discrimination law. The report confirmed what Abiona was trying to prove in his lawsuit for the Cook family, that the police used racial profiling, that they used force excessively. The report even confirmed that some officers used the N-word when on the job, with no repercussions. The DOJ report also said the Baltimore Police Department needed a clear-cut policy on foot pursuits. I asked Police Commissioner Kevin Davis to respond. He took command of the force in 2015. So I wanted to ask you if there's a foot pursuit policy to guide officers' conduct in pursuit. Uh, there, there's training, but there's not a specific policy. Police officers chase bad guys. That's what we do. So when we see a person who's engaged in suspicious conduct, and if that person runs, police officers should engage in foot pursuits. That's what we do. Uh, we're crime fighters. The DOJ also identified the police department's serious lack of oversight. In Jay's case, someone filed an incident report that was inaccurate at best, falsified at worst. I asked Commissioner Davis about this. Sometimes, if the reports don't match, it's a training issue. Sometimes it's a disciplinary issue. And then from time to time, it's, it's, a, it's a, an issue with truthfulness and, and honesty. Davis said he has no problem holding his police officers accountable. He said he fired 23 officers in 2016. They didn't deserve to, to represent this agency in our community. So what happened to the officers in Jay Cook's case? Officer Howard, who got the facts wrong on the report of Jay's death, left the force a month after the incident to become a police officer in Delaware. Haywood Bradley, the black cop who was there when Jay died, filed a discrimination suit of his own against the department several years later. The suit was dismissed, and Bradley is no longer a policeman. Angela Choi is still on the Baltimore police force. So is Jared Freed, the cop a witness said shook the fence Jay was hanging on to. That was reporter Mary Rose Madden of WYPR in Baltimore. Jay Cook died after running from the cops, but Greg Butler's running with the police had a different ending in court. I'm a man of values and principles, and anybody who doesn't bring me home doesn't deserve home from my hands. The surprising end to Greg's story, coming up next on Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. This hour, we're following the stories of two different black men in Baltimore who ran from cops. We're going to return now to Greg Butler. He's the young man who became the poster child for the unrest in the city two years ago. He was 21 at the time and cut a hole in a fire hose live on CNN. When we left Greg, he was on trial for running away from the police that night. He's also been charged by the federal government for cutting the fire hose. Reporter Mary Wiltenberg picks up Greg's story. He's on trial at the same time as the first officer charged in Freddie Gray's death, and the city is bracing for protests. Outside Baltimore's federal courthouse, the city was tense. But inside... The government calls the case of the United States versus Gregory Lee Butler Jr. Greg Butler faced two federal counts. Obstruction of firefighters during a civil disorder. That carried a five-year maximum sentence and aiding and abetting arson, which carried up to 20 years. As the hearing got underway, the prosecutor explained that Greg was also on trial in state court. The judge interrupted. Mr. Sheldon, hold on. He's ongoing trial right as we're speaking. Your Honor, um, they're on a lunch break. And during that lunch break, Mr. Butler was brought over 
seen by the U.S. Marshals with the understanding from Judge Finn that he would be brought back over to circuit court at 2.30 this afternoon. The judge was incredulous. Um, I don't, I'm, as I say in the street, I'm not feeling it. I don't, I don't, I think it's ripe with problems. The judge had Greg fitted with an ankle monitor, told him to come back when his other trial was over, and released him with just minutes to make it the seven blocks back to circuit court. I started running with him through the midday traffic of downtown Baltimore. I mean, just take a step back and look at, like, how we moving, you know? Who sprints from courtroom to courtroom? <laughs> As we ran, Greg talked about the serious federal charges he now faced. I was trying to do math in my head because, again, I haven't seen any charge papers until I got to the courtroom. So I've been hearing rumors of five, this, that, and the third, but I knew it was two charges. So I kind of, that's kind of sprint across real fast. They could add up to 25 years. That's more time I've been alive, you know, so. Greg said it bothered him that the Baltimore police officer being tried at the same time for the death of Freddie Gray was enjoying more freedom than he was. All I know is he's walking around free and I got an ankle bracelet. The next morning, the jury in Greg's state case found him guilty of two charges. The first was attempted theft of under $100. That's when he tried to take a pack of cigarettes from a looted 7-Eleven. The second was escape in the second degree for running from the cops who'd arrested him. Citing Greg's youth and the fact that this was his first offense, the judge gave him probation. The charges could be expunged from his record after three years of good behavior. Greg and I set off again. So now we're leaving straight from the uh, circuit court, going right to the federal court for my detention hearing. And um, we're going to see if I can uh, get some arrangements set up where as though I can stay on the street and uh, stay with my girlfriend and the baby and um, keep our fight going. In six months, Greg was going to be a father. For the first time, it hit home that he might not be there to meet his child. How you feel now? Definitely walking lower to the ground than I was yesterday. We got back to the federal courthouse. Greg sat before the judge, his sisters in the gallery. The prosecutor, Philip Selden, argued that Greg should be locked up until his case came to trial. He brought up the CNN broadcast where you can see Greg cutting the hose. Yes, I saw it. Did you saw that? See that? Well, well, if, if you just saw that, they just, while we were talking there, just cut the hose with a knife. And then Cameras were out. He had a plan in place. You will see him on those cameras actually engaging the camera. And when the camera does not engage him, he then takes the acts of cutting those hose lines. Following that conduct, Mr. Butler is seen actually dancing in the street. Then Liz Oyer, Greg's public defender, rose and questioned why Greg was even being charged federally. Um, Your Honor, I think the way the government is handling this case is really just reinforcing the dynamic between law enforcement and residents of the city that got us here in the first place, Your Honor. It was important, um, she said, to take into account what had happened in the city in April 2015 and why it had happened. That was a historically heated, emotional and volatile moment in the history of this city. And what Mr. Butler is accused of doing here needs to be understood against that backdrop. The prosecutor, though, said it didn't matter what the context was. Greg couldn't be trusted. He'd lied to police and tried to run from them. Then the prosecutor reeled off a list of pettier complaints, like a missed appearance in traffic court. Greg's lawyer said bringing that up suggested the government was out of touch with the city. Honestly, you could lock up half of the young men in Baltimore City based on the same theories that the government is asserting here. That was day two of Greg's federal case. The next 331 days were just as fractious as the lawyers squared off in motions and hearings. Meantime, all six cases against the police charged in Freddie Gray's death ended without convictions and without more unrest in the city. And Greg and his girlfriend, Chastity, became parents to a son, Kai Lee Butler. I cried when he came out. It was too much for me. I couldn't I, handle it. I was so surprised when he cried. I was so surprised. It made me cry. You just overwhelmed. Just trying to figure out what is what am what is my legacy going to be for him? What am I going to leave him? What am I going to help him grow into? What kind of man do I want him to be? You know. And then you leave the question: Who? Uh, what kind of man are you? 
What kind of man is Greg? It's the question his federal case boiled down to. What kind of guy pokes holes in a fire hose? A criminal bent on hurting people? Or a frustrated kid who seized an opportunity to strike back? The whole two years I've known Greg, he's been wrestling with the question, what kind of man do I want to be? His background pointed one way. If you watch your parents as drug addicts, and their parents were drug addicts, you know, there's no reason for me to cower and hide because I'm a die on these streets regardless. You know, I'm ready to go at any day. But these days, his choices point in another direction. For my son to be in a place where I want him to be, to uh, excel academically, to be a good person in our community, I have to lay that groundwork. So that's my life's work at this point. Eventually, Greg's lawyers persuaded the judge to throw out the more serious charge against him. He pled guilty to the lesser one, obstructing firefighters. In November 2016, days before the presidential election, Greg appeared in federal court one last time to be sentenced. The prosecution wanted three years of jail time and restitution to the tune of almost $3 million. You know, I felt like the U.S. attorney, he was, he was giving it all he had. He was giving it all he had. Recording wasn't allowed at this sentencing hearing. Things looked bad for Greg. Then something strange happened. Greg's lawyer asked the judge if she could call a witness who was supposed to be testifying for the prosecution, Baltimore Deputy Fire Chief Carl Zimmerman. A year earlier, Zimmerman had spoken to me about Greg's cutting the fire hose and the danger that put his firefighters in. To turn around and put one of their lives in jeopardy because you feel like you need to be liberated doesn't really hold a lot of water with us. We're not real hip to that. There on the stand, Zimmerman took a different tone. He testified that Greg had showed up when the drugstore had nearly burned down, so stabbing the hose hadn't hurt anyone. Then Greg's attorney asked him, did he have an opinion about what Greg's punishment should be? And Zimmerman shocked the room by saying, yes, community service, with the fire department, supervised by me. When it was Greg's turn to speak, he stood, wearing black-framed glasses, a new Navy suit, and a bow tie, the spitting image of one of his idols, Malcolm X. A few nights earlier, he had sounded like Malcolm when we talked about why he thought people in Baltimore had taken to the streets. Black people have been living this way since the first day we touched soil. We live like somebody's watching us from slavery to Jim Crow to now. So when you have Black people feeling like yeah, you watching me, but you can't stop me. It's no telling what's going to come out there because my ancestors are speaking through me at this point. Later on, Greg would tell me what he was thinking that moment in court when he stood to address the judge. If you never said anything important in your life, this is what the hell you got to, you know what I mean? You know, I kind of had Tupac in the back of my head thinking like, all right, the pressure's on and... um. This is the point where people fold. You know what I mean? This is the point where people buckle and cry. But Greg didn't fold. He started to apologize, but the judge interrupted him. Why did you do it? What Greg said next was a gentler version of something he'd said to me a few nights earlier. He'd been wrong to lump firefighters and police together in his mind that day. Uh, I threw bottles at the police. I ain't sorry for that, because I understand who the enemy was. But firefighters, that was different. Firefighters aren't letting black people burn in buildings. So from that aspect, I can be sorry. I can, you know, want to make amends because at the end of the day, I'm a man of values and principles. And anybody who doesn't bring me home doesn't deserve home from my hands. When Greg sat down, the judge delivered his sentence. Community service, no further jail time, and a million dollars of restitution for the burned CVS drugstore to be paid $100 a month. He wasn't condoning Greg's conduct, the judge said, but the whole city was a victim of what had happened. People in the community, the firefighters, and the police. He said to Greg, I don't want to make you another victim. I spoke to Greg's lawyer, Liz Oyer, later in her office. She talked about how she felt when the deputy fire chief agreed to testify on Greg's behalf. It never works like this, she said. It's honestly the first time in my career in this office, I've been in the office for a little over four years, that I have seen anybody just kind of look at the situation and do what they thought was right, regardless of how it might come back. 
on them negatively. It reaffirmed my faith in humanity a little bit because we don't, we don't see that a lot in my job. Really not ever prior to this. But this time was different. Behind the scenes, Greg's situation had come to the attention of the city's emergency manager, who got to know him and like him. He lobbied colleagues in the fire department until they got behind the idea that sometimes a person needs a second chance. When Greg thinks back now to April 2015, he comes back to the two famous images of him that day. The one of him in a gas mask stabbing a fire hose, and that other one. He's on a bike, in a haze of smoke, facing a line of cops in riot gear, raising his fist in the air. That picture says something about the kind of man Greg wants to be. From that moment on the bike, it was just, it was a power that I hadn't really had. I, at that very second, for that two seconds that I had my fist up, I was the leader of that community. Um, in that moment, I saw police in a position that I've never seen them in on the defensive. It was just freedom took over. Freedom took over, and I wanted to let everybody around me know that they was free too. Greg's story came to us from Mary Wiltenberg. After his trial, Greg met with the firefighters whose hose he cut and apologized. A couple final notes on our show. Earlier this year, the FBI indicted seven Baltimore police officers on federal racketeering charges. The plainclothes cops were charged with robbing citizens after chasing them on the streets during traffic stops and sometimes while searching homes. Right now, more than a dozen police departments around the country, including Baltimore's, are operating under legal settlements with the Justice Department. Attorney General Jeff Sessions says this is demoralizing for law enforcement. He wants the federal government to stop policing the police. But after years of police misconduct, will black citizens stick around to see how things play out? Or will they just keep on running? Mary Rose Madden and Mary Wiltenberg reported and produced the show. And Deborah George was the senior editor. Today's show was a co-production with WYPR in Baltimore. Our sound design team is Jim Briggs and Claire Mullen. They had help this week from Catherine Raimondo and Mary Lee Williams. Our head of studio is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell is our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor. And our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reven David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson. And remember, there is always more to the story. <laughs>